Hey everyone, welcome back to Curbside Consult, one of the podcast series at the New England Journal of Medicine NEJM Group. I'm Clem, a senior editorial fellow. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing two guests on the AAP's 2022 guidelines on the management of neonatal hyperbilirubinemia. Our first guest is Alex Kemper. He's the Division Chief of Primary Care Pediatrics at Nationwide Children's Hospital and a professor of pediatrics at The Ohio State University College of Medicine. Our second guest is Thomas Newman, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and Pediatrics at UCSF. And he's also an author on designing clinical research and evidence-based diagnosis to textbooks. Alex and Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Clem. Really delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited we could finally get you guys in. As we were talking about in pre-recording, these guidelines have been the talk of the town. Anywhere I go on the different pediatric wards that I've worked on, people have been asking me about it. So I'm really glad that we can pick your brains about these things. And just to be clear, it's talk of the town in a good way. Yes, in a good way, in a, in, a, in the best way. <laughs> um, can one of you give the li- listeners a glimpse into the AAP recommendation process and sort of what went into the development of this practice guideline? The process is that the AAP identifies a group of people they ask to volunteer to update guidelines. And often there's some overlap from the people who did the previous guideline, as there was in this case. I was on the guideline committees for 1994 and 2004, and this one. And the committees sift through the evidence and see what things should stay the same and what things need to be changed. And generally, they're what I would call tweaks. And I think that was the case in this case, where we tweak some of the thresholds up. Although I would say a substantive change is the recommendation for universal bilirubin screening. That had been kind of a recommendation before, but it wasn't actually part of the official 2004 guideline. It had been recommended in a 2009 update with clarifications that was written by a lot of the same authors as the guideline, but didn't have the official AAP designation as a guideline. I think there's some interesting things about the hyperbilirubinemia guideline. First of all, the AAP's guideline for the management of hyperbilirubinemia in the term infant was the very first clinical practice guideline that the AAP ever put together. It was originally called a practice parameter, but this guideline really builds on the first attempt that the Academy had at a clinical practice guideline. And the Academy likes to relook at all of its clinical practice guidelines, typically every five years. And the obvious question is, why did it take so long for the new guideline? We know that currently the risk of developing chronicterus is low and that the current guideline had been in place and was working for a long time. So the guideline committee, as it started working on it, had to be very careful to make sure that the guideline simplified care, was helpful to clinicians, and didn't increase any risk of bad outcomes like chronicterus. Yeah. And later in the podcast, we'll dive into some of the new data that has come out, and hopefully you guys can elaborate on some of that information that has informed the guidelines. So the first portion of the guidelines, we're just going to dive right in. It discusses prevention of hyperbilirubinemia in a specific subset of infants, and specifically those with potential isoimmune hemolytic disease. So maybe you guys could talk a little bit about these infants, which infants are at risk of this sort of disease, and in which infants should we think about DAT and blood typing? Yeah, I want to reinforce that the prevention of hyperbilirubinemia really starts with the obstetricians and the need to measure both the maternal blood type and antibody screen. And the babies that get into the most trouble with hyperbilirubinemia traditionally have always been those with isoimmunization. 
And that can be detected prenatally, mostly. Prevented with Rogam or treated with intrauterine exchange transfusion if it's very severe. If the mother's antibody screen is positive, the new guideline has really very conservative recommendations about making sure that the Coombs test is done or direct anticoagulant test is done on the baby if the mother had a positive antibody screen. And if the Coombs test is positive, following those babies very closely, because they're the ones that can get into trouble. And also it happens during the birth hospitalization typically. So it's really something if you stay on top of it, you should be able to prevent the need for exchange transfusion. What about for babies where sometimes this happens, we don't necessarily have the mother's records or for some reason, the prenatal care wasn't as comprehensive as we would like it to be. And so the baby comes out without significant blood work from the mother. What should we as pediatricians do in that setting? Clem, that's such a great question. If the maternal antibody screen wasn't done, it's important to go ahead and get a DAT Coombs test, as Tom talked about, really as soon as possible. And there are other times when you might want to get a DAT as well. Again, like Tom said, most of this should be taken care of prenatally. But if there's any concern, if it wasn't done, it's really important to go ahead and get a DAT. The next portion we talk about infants who are at risk for significant hyperbilirubinemia. Specifically, there are some infants that are now listed who were not in the 2000 version of the guideline and vice versa. Would you guys care to elaborate about some of these changes? Well, I would first say every baby's at risk. (laughs) True, yeah. And that's why we recommend a bilirubin test on every baby before they leave the hospital. The 2004 guideline has a longer list of risk factors for hyperbilirubinemia. And a lot of the risk factors that we listed in 2004, we don't really need to pay as much attention to them because if we're measuring a bilirubin on every baby, they will already have caused that bilirubin to be high and will already alert you that that baby needs close follow-up. That makes sense. And I wanted to just point out a special shout out to the babies with Down syndrome, which were not mentioned in the previous version of the guidelines, but is what I believe to be a marginalized population that I care deeply about. So I'm glad that they're mentioned now to give pediatricians a heightened awareness that there might be some heightened risk there. So similar to the prior guideline, the threshold to start phototherapy or exchange transfusion depends on the presence of risk factors for neurotoxicity when hyperbilirubinemia develops. And how do these risk factors compare to those in the previous version of the guidelines? One of the guiding principles that I had as I was working on the guidelines is I wanted to respect the decision-making skills of the clinician that was taking care of the baby and the family, and to really empower clinicians and families to work together in shared decision-making when there was no simple right answer. I mean, there's so many variables that go into this. So if you look at the 2009 commentary, it really spells out the issues related to what a neurotoxicity risk factor is, a hyperbilirubinemia neurotoxicity risk factor. And it goes into detail around sepsis and acidosis and those kinds of things that could increase the risk of harm associated with elevated bilirubin levels. The new guideline really talks about clinical instability in the previous 24 hours. So instead of spelling out exactly what clinical instability is, the current guideline really defers to the judgment of the clinician around that. I laugh because since the guidelines have come out, you might imagine that I get email on a pretty regular basis with clinical scenarios. And what makes me smile as I read the scenarios is that they're so detailed. I have a patient that was born west of the Mississippi on a full moon 
and the bilirubin this and the baby was acting a little bit sick. So I decided to monitor the baby and get an extra transcutaneous bilirubin measure. All those things are appropriate, but they're kinds of things you can't anticipate as you're writing a guideline. So an overriding philosophy in there was to defer to the judgment of the clinician, but give the understanding so that the clinician could understand the range of options and to engage in meaningful clinical decision-making. I really appreciate that. I think that is one thing that's unique about this guideline compared to some of the other guidelines. I think there's a trend in medicine to be more and more prescriptive with the guidelines and to say, with this set of things, you have to do this. But I appreciate that uh, you're allowing clinicians to be clinicians and to make decisions and give them that freedom. And the question comes up, okay, so it says sepsis. So and people ask, okay, well, this is a baby whose mom had a fever. And so we did a blood culture, but we don't have the blood culture back. And we didn't start antibiotics. Does that count as sepsis? Or we did start as antibiotics, but the baby has remained well. Does that count? And these are some of the judgment calls that Alex referred to, where the actual data comes from babies who were sick with sepsis. But this just involves maybe doing phototherapy a little sooner. Maybe that would be prudent to do. Yeah. And I think that just also reflects a certain amount of uncertainty in pediatrics. We don't always have the information, either the evidence or the clinical information in, with the baby in front of us to make decisions, but it often comes down to sort of a judgment call. So both of you had alluded to this before, the bilirubin that we're talking about, Alex had mentioned was, was transcutaneous bilirubin. And I think most of the hospitals I work at start with a transcutaneous bilirubin. Now, when is that okay? And when should we think about measuring a serum bilirubin instead? The transcutaneous bilirubin is usually within about three milligrams per deciliter of the total serum bilirubin, but it gets a little bit less accurate the higher the bilirubin is. So the guideline recommends if the bilirubin, the transcutaneous, is within three of the phototherapy threshold, meaning that if you add three to it, you'd exceed the phototherapy threshold, then we say it'd probably be safest to get a serum bilirubin to double check, or if it's more than 15 milligrams per deciliter. And a lot of those in whom it's more than 15 will also be within three of the threshold, but in older babies, maybe not. But again, the higher the serum bilirubin, the more we see bigger differences between the transcutaneous and the serum bilirubin. So it's just, we think it's safest to measure a serum bilirubin if it's over 15 or within three of the phototherapy threshold. Clem, one of the questions I get is, um, is it safe to use transcutaneous bilirubin measures based on the infant's skin tone. So if the infant has darker skin tone, for example, is the measure less valid? And from the studies that we've looked at, and there, there are two general devices, one overestimates the bilirubin level a little bit, one underestimates the bilirubin level a little bit. But if you follow the rules that Tom talked about in terms of getting a serum bilirubin, if you're within three of the phototherapy level, or if it's above 15, then it's completely fine to use the transcutaneous bilirubin meters, regardless of skin tone. So I think that's important for, for your listeners to understand. The other issue with transcutaneous bilirubin meters, and I'm sure we'll get to this later, is that once you start phototherapy, then the measures become questionable. So the guideline says that it's okay to return back to the transcutaneous bilirubin meters to measure bilirubin level after it's been more than 24 hours since phototherapy stopped. But if it's been within 24 hours, then it's better just to go ahead and get a serum bilirubin meter. Now they have these skin covers that you can put on to protect like 
a little patch of skin from phototherapy with the thinking that that might preserve the validity of the transcutaneous bilirubin measure. But we just didn't find sufficient evidence to make us feel comfortable that that was okay at this point. So if it's been within 24 hours of starting phototherapy, stick with the serum bilirubin measure instead of the transcutaneous bilirubin measure. Yeah, that makes sense. And thank you for drawing attention to this important issue and, and thinking about babies of, with skins of different colors so that we can make sure that there's equitable care for all sorts of babies. And again, thank you, Alex, for reiterating the fact that we should not be using the transcutaneous bilirubin within 24 hours of phototherapy. So one of the major changes in this guideline is are the curves that we're using for phototherapy. So I would love for you guys to just talk about these new curves, how they compare to the old ones, and sort of what data went into making these new curves. I'm going to let Tom talk about the specific changes, but I would say that that was like three or four years worth of discussion to get to agreements on this, because ideally what you would do is start with the exchange transfusion lines and at each point do a risk-benefit analysis, right, to figure out like, well, above this level, you should do the exchange transfusion and below this level, it's safe not to, but we don't have the kind of evidence to be able to do that. And so... Although we couldn't say exactly where it was safe to bring the exchange transfusion levels up, there has been a lot of evidence that's accrued over the years to suggest that there was opportunity to increase things. And then, of course, as you increase the exchange transfusion that level, that gives you the opportunity to increase the phototherapy level because one of the main goals of phototherapy is to prevent the need for exchange transfusion. But Tom is our resident epidemiologist and all-knowing bilirubin guru really helped thread the needle in terms of the change. So I'm going to give him a lot of credit for helping the group come to consensus and also talk about how what changes were made. Well, I will be 100% honest. And then if Alex says you need to cut this out later, maybe you can. But where these thresholds came from, though the AAP started in 2014, at UCSF, we became a little bit impatient with the speed with which the guideline was progressing. And a group of hospitals affiliated with UCSF, uh, immodestly called the Northern California Neonatology Consortium, created their own guideline. And I helped with that, trying to guess where the AAP was going to end up. And we added two to the 2004 low risk threshold and one to the medium risk threshold and left the 35 week high-risk threshold the same. And that actually ended up sort of serving as a starting point for the AAP. And we ended up very close to that. I do want to add, I guess, a little color commentary to what Tom said, which is increasing the thresholds, even by a small amount, can substantially reduce the number of babies that end up needing phototherapy or an exchange transfusion. So I've had some people say, well, you know, all that, and you're talking about like a milligram per deciliter extra here. That's actually a substantial number of infants. The other point that I want to make, and I've spoken to many family members who have a family member who's affected with carnicterus, is that they understand why the increase was made, but they're worried about pediatricians becoming cavalier. So if you increase the numbers up a little bit, well, what's the difference between increasing a little bit more? Maybe we don't have to be as vigilant. And so obviously that's not a message that we want to save. I mean, carnicterus is a rare event, but it's devastating and most of the time preventable. So we don't want to send the message home that by increasing the thresholds, 
you don't need to worry far from that. You do need to worry. So on one hand, we were able to increase the thresholds and really dramatically decrease the number of babies that are going to need to require treatment. But we want to remind people to be cautious and don't let your guard down because of really how terrible Cronicturus is. One of the reasons why it actually is nice that it took so long for the guideline to come out is there was time to just do a lot more research between 2014 and 2022. And some of that research in 2016, we published a paper that there had been some concerns that phototherapy increased the risk of cancer, particularly leukemia. We found that in Northern California, Kaiser, that it wasn't statistically significant when you controlled for bilirubin levels, but it was still kind of worrisome. But in maybe 2020, we published a reanalysis you know, with another hundreds of thousands of person years of data. And actually that signal from Kaiser Permanente had gotten more reassuring. But then there was also a publication showing that there are two publications linking phototherapy with a slightly increased risk of epilepsy. And that persisted after controlling for bilirubin levels. So that is a cause for concern, although the risk is low. So Tom, can I push you on this? Because I think it would be helpful when it comes time to share decision-making. If there's a debate about whether or not to begin phototherapy, say sub-threshold phototherapy right below the phototherapy threshold, what would you tell them? Like how safe would you say phototherapy is in that situation? I'd say we think it's <laughs> we think it's pretty safe. The excess risk of epilepsy or seizures and the risk is in the range of about two or three per thousand over 10 years. So not a high risk. On the other hand, cornicterus is also very rare. In general, my vote would be less phototherapy and more close follow-up. Because in many cases, if you just repeat a bilirubin level, if you haven't done one for a while, you can see if it's just under the threshold, or has it now gone above the threshold and now we should treat? Or is it staying the same or starting to go down? And maybe then you could prevent a bilirubin admission or prevent a course of phototherapy. Yeah, thank you. That's a very robust discussion. I didn't anticipate my two guests questioning each other. Well, let's just say we spent eight years talking about this. I like that. And I think, Tom, what you were saying does align with, in general, what the Choosing Wisely campaign sort of reminds pediatricians to do, which is to not routinely use sub-threshold phototherapy in babies. So now let's say we have a baby where the threshold is reached and we do want to give phototherapy. They're being admitted. I often get questions from the nursing staff, you know, what type of bilirubin blankets do you want? Do you want single-sided, double-sided? And they have all these fancy things that I don't even know what they all do. Maybe you guys being experts can really teach me about this. And when should I be using one versus two blankets or does it really not even matter? Basically, the more photons of the right wavelength are reaching the baby's skin. So that depends both on the intensity of the light and the amount of surface area exposed, the faster the bilirubin will drop. And so in general, I would say more phototherapy for a shorter time will get the baby out of the hospital sooner, and that would be the way to go. The place where it gets tricky is if in order to get the most intense phototherapy, you need to be at a higher level of care. At least for us until recently, if you wanted to do like triple lights, you had to be in the NICU. And so if you have to be in the NICU, I'd rather have you get double lights or have less intense phototherapy and stay out of the neonatal intensive care unit. So that's the kind of trade-off is the more, if you can do as much light as possible at the lowest level of care, that's probably what you want to do. I generally tell people I want to bring out the photon torpedo, but I've learned some things, all right? So in the process of working on the guidelines, 
I learned about what hospitals need to do to maintain their phototherapy equipment. And each manufacturer has a set of recommendations regarding testing the equipment and making sure that it delivers light in the right, right wavelength. I had no idea before I started working on the guidelines that that was a thing. So I'd recommend that anybody who's listening to this who takes care of babies with hyperbilirubinemia is just to ask in their hospital if that regular maintenance process was in place. Let me ask you a follow-up question for my baby who now still needs phototherapy. Should I be getting any lab work for this baby? Should we be getting a CBC, a reticulite site count? Do I want to smear to look at the, the types of blood cells they have for hemolysis? Or should I be getting a G6PD? What are sort of the things you would recommend for pediatricians to obtain? Well, the current guideline, actually, if you're just at the phototherapy line and not escalation of care, it says a CBC or hematocrit or hemoglobin. And believe it or not, even from that, I've gotten pushback from my colleagues. <laughs> I've gotten a lot of email about that. So the thinking about the rationale for getting a CBC or hematocrit or hemoglobin was just if there is um, hemolysis going on, having that baseline point is helpful. And the reality is you're going to be getting a total serum bilirubin level in that baby anyway, so you're going to have to be poking for blood. So it's not incrementally really that much more in the grand scheme of things to get a CBC or hemoglobin or a hematocrit. But I've gotten a lot of pushback for that. And again, I'll defer to clinical judgment. The guideline does not recommend getting reticulous site counts, although you, you might imagine where that would be helpful if there was hemolysis going on. And again, if you want to do it, the guidelines don't say don't do it. You bring up the issue of G6PD, and I'm sure we're going to be talking more about um, G6PD deficiency shortly. The problem with getting for testing G6PD deficiency is the results generally don't come back in a time that's operational. So if you're concerned about massive um, hemolysis that might follow G6PD deficiency, you won't get the laboratory test back until the baby obviously has massive hemolysis. And so that's another argument for getting the CBC or the hematocrit or the hemoglobin just so you have that baseline value. Yeah. And we thought we were showing restraint, just recommending just a hemoglobin or hematocrit or CBC compared to all the tests that used to be recommended. And the idea there is the whole workup you can do for babies who are anemic. But if they're not anemic, then you probably don't need to do all those things like the red cell morphology and the smear and the red cell membrane studies and so on. Perfect. So moving forward with my baby, let's say they got phototherapy and now I'm being asked, how often should we check bilirubins on this child now on phototherapy? I think the guideline leaves us a bit open. So sort of would love to pick your brains about what you guys do in practice and sort of what you tell other clinicians. Some babies who are getting phototherapy may be already close to the escalation of care level, which is two milligrams per deciliter below the exchange level. So obviously they're the ones you're going to check a bilirubin much sooner on. And also it depends sort of on what you know about the rate of rise. There's some babies you've been following as an outpatient and their bilirubin has sort of been inching up and now it's above the threshold and you're not nearly as worried about them as the younger babies who are getting phototherapy during their birth hospitalization where it's been rising much more rapidly. I'll say, Clem, there was a version of the guideline in development that was incredibly prescriptive about the frequency of getting it, and it just wasn't operational. And so there's this recommendation to, as Tom said, test more frequently if the baby is at risk based on having hyperbilirubinemia 
risk factors or hyperbilirubinemia, neurotoxicity risk factors, or getting closer to the area that you would be worried about having to need to get a, an exchange transfusion. But the recommendation is about 12 hours after initiating phototherapy to get a measure of the total serum bilirubin level. And then again, doing it daily after that at a minimum, but more frequently based on risk. And there's no clear way in a guideline to outline all the risks. So I think it's important to recognize the unique factors in the baby in front of you and proceed accordingly. Great. And Alex and Tom, when can we stop phototherapy? And even more salient question I think that I get asked a lot is after we stop, should we be checking a rebound bilirubin? And in which babies should we do that? Let's break this up into two questions because that's a major source of questions that I've gotten to the point that Tom and I have been talking about putting a, a fact sheet up with the guideline. So the guideline recommends that it's an option to stop phototherapy when the TSB is two milligrams per deciliter below the hour-specific phototherapy threshold for that infant. And Tom has done a lot of work around predicting the likelihood of rebound, which is what the phototherapy stopping rule was based on. So Tom, do you want to explain where that all came from? Yeah. Pearl Chang, who's a pediatric hospitalist in Seattle, led some studies uh, with me at using data from Northern California, Kaiser, looking at babies getting phototherapy and then risk factors for rebound back to above the phototherapy threshold. So that was the outcome and developed two prediction rules. The first one was in, included three things, age of the baby, the gestational age, and the difference between the current bilirubin level and the phototherapy threshold when this bilirubin level at the time you're getting ready to stop phototherapy was drawn. Because it turns out that the younger you are when phototherapy starts, the higher the risk of rebound, the lower the gestational age, and the closer you are to the threshold, meaning the higher your bilirubin, the more likely you are to have significant rebound. The remarkable thing is if you get the bilirubin level to two milligrams per deciliter below the point that you would have started it, as we discussed, your risk of having a rebound hyperbilirubinemia that requires phototherapy is about one in 20, maybe even less than that. Yeah. So actually part of why Pearl and I did this work is we like the idea of being able to quantify that risk and then engage in some shared decision-making with the family because some families really want to get home and might be willing to tolerate a slightly higher risk of readmission to get home sooner. And others really might not want to get readmitted. And they're willing to stay in the hospital an extra day if it reduces their risk of readmission. So if you can say, okay, where the bilirubin level is now, we think the chance that this baby will need phototherapy again is 10% or 2% or 5%. That can help allow for some joint decision-making. Yeah, that's great. That's how I've been using that calculator tool, just to give me a, an idea, an estimate, and then sort of use that to talk to families. Let's move on to follow-up. So let's say that we have a baby who's received phototherapy. We've decided that we could stop it, and perhaps we check a rebound bilirubin and it looks fine. How should this baby be followed up when they leave the hospital, and where can clinicians get information to determine the time of follow-up? In general, we recommend follow-up within the next day with the consideration of getting another total serum bilirubin level based on your level of concern. Obviously, if you're closer to phototherapy threshold at the time of discharge than the two milligrams per deciliter or there are other risk factors, then that's a baby where you want to use your clinical judgment and see the baby sooner. One of the points that I wanted to make, and this is a question that's come up for me, 
is the guideline provides information about the timing of follow-up from the newborn hospitalization for babies that did not receive phototherapy. So there's a little table that shows the age of the baby and the transcutaneous bilirubin level, total serum bilirubin level, and how close that is to the phototherapy threshold. And it guides follow-up in terms of the number of days and whether or not a repeat bilirubin level should be checked. And what I don't want people to do is conflate that table, which is follow-up for the baby that did not receive phototherapy during the birth hospitalization for the kind of follow-up that you're talking about, Clem, for the baby that required phototherapy. That's more nuanced and requires careful thought. Yeah, that's a really good point, is I wouldn't want people to use that. I think that's figure seven, the guide follow-up in a baby who has received phototherapy, because those babies are all at much higher risk. Yeah, thank you. And for people who want to look at it, it is um, figure seven in the guidelines that there is a table for babies who did not receive phototherapy. Perfect. And then I don't know if we have that much time to talk about exchange transfusion and sort of the NICU management of these babies, but are there any comments you guys want to make about babies who are reaching the escalation of care threshold? I guess my main point is that if baby is getting to the escalation of care level, which we described as two milligrams per deciliter before the exchange transfusion threshold, that's a medical emergency. So that's where you need to pull out all the stops. You want to be aggressive in terms of phototherapy, hydration if the baby needs it. If the baby is not in a place where an exchange transfusion could be done, you want to be on the phone talking to that place to determine the right management. It's still likely with that aggressive therapy that the bilirubin level may fall, but you just don't want to be in the position where you don't have the baby in the safest environment. So it's really in a medical emergency, pull out of the stops when you're closing in on the exchange transfusion threshold. Thank you. And at that point, are there any other additional studies that you would get at the, on the baby? Maybe perhaps some more blood work or some other things that would be helpful for the neonatologists? Yeah, it's actually, there is a flow sheet for escalation of care that describes getting, for example, an albumin level and getting the blood bank ready in case you need to do an exchange transfusion with the type and cross match and so on. I'd say there's sort of two groups of babies that get to that escalation of care threshold. There's some often during their birth admission that you've been giving phototherapy to and the bilirubin is going up in spite of phototherapy. And those are the babies I'm most worried about. You're already doing phototherapy and the bilirubin is going up anyway. If they're direct antiglobulin test positive and the bilirubin is going up anyway and they're at that level, there's an option to give IVIG. But the other group of babies are babies, for example, who were readmitted and their bilirubin is already there. And they haven't really had a chance at phototherapy. And the vast majority of those as soon as they get some hydration, maybe just some formula and phototherapy, their bilirubin is going to drop pretty fast. So that's why we don't say we immediately transfer to a place that can do an exchange transfusion, but instead to consult with a neonatologist. And just as when you're getting ready to do an exchange transfusion, often between the time you send the blood to the blood bank and the blood bank is ready and the lines are in and you're ready to do it, the bilirubin often will drop below the level at which you actually need to do an exchange. So there will be times when you prepare to do an exchange and then are grateful to not to have to. I would say these are really complicated situations, but hopefully if you carefully follow the guideline, you can avoid it. You won't always be able to avoid these complicated situations, but really focusing on the prevention hopefully will avoid the need to be in this complicated area. Right. Prevention and asking for help early so that you have that neonatologist when that situation arises. Alex and Tom, are there any other issues you would like to highlight? Any other points that you would like to make before we wrap up? I would like to highlight a couple of things. One is for 
clinicians that are discharging babies from the newborn hospitalization, it's really important to communicate regarding follow-up about what the DAT was, if that was checked, what the discharge bilirubin level is, all that kind of stuff. That just creates an extra layer of safety. And it's really important to make sure that follow-up has been organized and that the family understands what to do. Because sadly, we know that there are cases of chronicters that happen because the failure to communicate and arrange follow-up. So that's one really important point that I want to make. And then the second point I want to make, Clem, is just thank you for guiding us through this conversation. And I hope that you and your listeners found this useful. I'm sure they will. I want to make one more point. We actually haven't talked much about G6PD deficiency. And most of the cases of chronicterus that we are seeing now are due to G6PD deficiency. And I think probably screening for G6PD deficiency with the kind of rapid turnaround that it would take to have it be useful in newborns is coming. Meanwhile, if people can just Google neonatal jaundice FAQs AAP, you can find the newly revised parent handout about jaundice. And it includes a paragraph that's really important that I want to read to you. It says, also, let your baby's doctor know if you eat fava beans, broad beans, or use any of the following products, mothballs, antibiotics, henna, or herbal remedies. Eating fava beans and using these products should be avoided because in rare cases, this can cause severe jaundice. So you notice we don't mention G6PD deficiency, but we just recommend all mothers avoid fava beans and these products because in many cases, the mother will have no idea that she's a G6PD deficiency carrier or that the baby has G6PD deficiency. And so we recommend those products be avoided for all mothers and babies. Great. Thank you. And hopefully down the line, we have people who can help us develop diagnostics for G6PD deficiency to help us make a diagnosis in the acute setting. Well, that wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Alex Kemper and Thomas Newman for joining us today to discuss the latest AAP updates in hyperbilirubinemia in neonates. We are always looking for ways to improve our podcast and educational material. So if you have any comments or suggestions, please leave a review on iTunes or email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomas's, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hamnick. Curbside Consoles is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of NEJM Group.